This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. This is Your FBI was a radio crime drama which aired in the United States on ABC from April 6th of 1945 to January 30th, 1953, for a total of 409 shows. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover gave it his endorsement, calling it the finest dramatic program on the air. Producer-director Jerry Devine was given access to FBI files by Hoover and the resulting dramatizations of FBI cases. Tonight's episode, Kidnapping Shotgun Hadley. This is your FBI. This is your FBI. An official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. To your FBI, you look for national security. And to the Equitable Society for financial security. These two great institutions are dedicated to the protection of you, your home, and your country. Tonight, the story of a crime against the home. Kidnapping. Just as it takes a special type of criminal to become a Hitler, so it takes a special type to become a kidnapper. Someone who refuses to face the fact that eventually all kidnappers and those who aid them will be hunted down by the FBI until they are dead or brought to justice. Such criminals aren't born, they're made. Created by environment, by society, by circumstance. And in one case, a kidnapper was created by something else, too. By his wife. Sally. Hmm? Ain't that enough for today? No. That last round was... No, Frank. I'm tired. Then rest for a minute. Dragging me out here every day for two weeks. I'm a good enough shot. For small-time hold-ups, maybe. That bank job was no... You don't have to tell me about that bank job, Frank. That was my idea. Just like everything's been my idea. Okay. It's all yours. Take the gun, too. Darling, darling. You know I didn't mean it that way. Mm. You know I plan everything just for you. Besides, I couldn't do it all myself. If you could, you would. Don't be silly. I don't know what the point of all this target practice is anyway. It's going to give you a reputation. With two stretches behind me, I've got one. Like a hundred others. But you're going to be bigger. Bigger than all of them. Bigger? Yes. 
What's the point of being anything if you can't be the biggest, the best, if you can't be number one? <laughs> and that's what we're going to be, Frank. Number one. You're crazy. Wait and see. Look, a couple more bank jobs and we can be driving on gasoline for the rest of our lives. <laughs> that's what my father must have said to my mother. And what were they? Petty crooks. Now they have to live on what I hand out to them. No, darling. We're going to do it right. One real job. And then we quit. What one real job? Never mind. Come on. When we're ready, I'll tell you. Sally! Darling, have I ever given you a bum steer? Well... Have I? No, but... Now empty both barrels like a good boy. And we'll call it quits for today. Professional criminals don't work alone. They help each other. The most successful are those who get the most help. And they get it through their reputations in the crime world. Sally Hadley learned this the way most people learn things, through experience. She made her husband an expert with a sawed-off shotgun. And then she made herself his press agent. She gave him a name, Shotgun Hadley. She passed out shells as souvenirs. She planned robberies and holdups. Saw that he carried them out perfectly. She built up his reputation. And then she was ready. Ready for really big games. Ready for that hot Saturday night in July when an Oklahoma millionaire named Walter Montgomery was playing cards on the screen porch of his home with his wife and his best friend. There's no point in playing with you, Henry. You always win. You and Walter just let me win because I'm your guest, right, Walter? I'm sorry, what'd you say, Henry? Oh, Walter. I thought I heard a car stop down below. You always think you hear something nobody else does. How about another hand? Not for me. Me either. I'm about ready for bed. Oh, why don't you... Sit down and keep quiet. What are you... Sit down. The shotgun works. Which one of you is Walter Montgomery? What do you want to know? Never mind. Which one of you is Montgomery? Which one of them is your husband, lady? Okay, I'll take both of them. But you can't... Shut up. Come on on your feet, boys. We're going for a little drive. If you ever want to see your husband again, stay away from the phone, Mrs. Montgomery. I told you the shotgun works. One hour later, a blue sedan stopped at an intersection 12 miles from Oklahoma City. A man was shoved out and his empty wallet thrown after him. Then the car continued on its way with Walter Montgomery blindfolded on the back seat. Just about that time, Mrs. Montgomery was putting through a long-distance call. She knew kidnapping was a federal offense, and following the Attorney General's advice to the public, she telephoned Mr. J. Edgar Hoover in Washington. In less than 45 minutes, special agents assigned by Mr. Hoover were on their way. They took no immediate action. Not even four days later, when Mrs. Montgomery received a typewritten letter, the first of a series of letters, the first of a series of ransom notes, there was this note from my husband enclosed in the letter. Are you sure that's his handwriting, Mrs. Montgomery? Yes. He, he said to give them the $200,000. They certainly set a high price. Did they give you instructions how to pay? Well, the letter says to watch for an ad in the paper. And then take an ad yourself? Yes. Then it told you not to notify the police? Yes. Not to take down the serial number of the bills? And to have only, oh, used $20 notes? How did you know? We haven't been reading your mail. It's just that kidnapping notes always follow the same pattern. 
Who do they want as the intermediary to deliver the money? Henry, Mr. Carroll. He's my husband's best friend. Well, if they put that ad in the paper tomorrow and you answer immediately, your husband should be back in the first of next week. Unless something happens. What do you mean? Mr. Skyler. Yes? I want to cooperate with the government. I know kidnappers are the worst kind of criminals. But you see, I... Well, I want my husband back. Please don't do anything. Mrs. Montgomery, there's no need for you to worry. The first concern of the FBI in any kidnapping case is to get the victim home safely. We want to see your husband back here as much as you do. And we won't make one single move that will stand in the way of his coming back. Thank you. Three days later, arrangements were made to have a satchel containing $200,000 thrown from the observation platform of a speeding train at a certain spot in Oklahoma. Although no one knew it, the serial number of every bill was taken down and listed. And nine days after he was kidnapped, Walter Montgomery came home to his wife. He hadn't had much sleep. He was very tired, but he was safe. He was alive. He was home. As soon as he'd recovered from the shock and rested, he was interviewed by the FBI. Ah, uh, Mr. Montgomery. Yes? What was the last thing you saw before being blindfolded? Why, uh, a lot of lights. Must have been some kind of plant. Well, there was a power plant near where they dropped Mr. Carroll. It could have been a power plant. All right. Now, on the way to the house, did you hear anything? Well, uh, one or two cars passed us, but... Oh, yes. We must have passed an oil field. Why? I heard the sound of the pumps. And uh, twice, I remember smelling gas. Well, then you passed two oil fields. That's right. Now, how long after you passed that second field would you guess it was before you got to the house? Oh, I don't know for sure. Not long, though. Fifteen minutes? Oh, less. I think uh, about ten, say. Good. Now, did the car drive right up to the house, or did they stop for anything? They uh, stopped to open a gate. How do you know? I heard a creak. Mm -hmm. And then they drove right up to the house? No, they drove into some kind of a building. Mm -hmm. A barn, it must have been, because I could smell hay. Well, then the house is probably a farmhouse. Yes. Yes. Was it close to the barn? It was exactly 12 steps away. I counted <laughs> Glad you did. Now, tell me. Did you have to go up any steps to the house? Three. And they creaked. What happened when you got inside? Well, they put cotton in my ears and taped it over with adhesives so I couldn't hear what they said. Mm -hmm. But every morning I could hear a rooster crow. And then about, uh, oh, less than a minute afterward, the sound of an airplane passing over the house. An airplane? Did you hear it every day? Yes. Uh, no... One day, it didn't come. Which day? Well, I, I don't know. But it rained that day. That was Sunday. That's the only day it rained while you were away. And that's the only day you didn't hear the airplane. That's right. I don't know whether this is of any aid to you. At the time, I knew I should try to remember everything that happened so I could be of assistance. Mr. Montgomery, I think you've practically drawn us a map right to that farmhouse. <laughs> For the FBI, anything can be a clue. The lights on a power plant, the smell of an oil field, the sound of an airplane. 
Using the information gotten from Mr. Montgomery, special agents mapped a circle, a ring around the approximate location of the farmhouse. They went to the airlines, checked schedules, checked flights, checked what line did not run a plane on that one Sunday. They figured over approximately what area the early morning flight passed and the ring around the farmhouse grew smaller, tighter, closer. Now the FBI agents moved into the ring looking for the farmhouse. Looking for a farmhouse with a gate wide enough for a car to pass through. A farmhouse with a barn only 12 steps away. 12 steps away from a porch with three creaking stairs. Sorry, I didn't know there was anyone home. Well, you can see I'm home, can't you? Yes. What do you want? I'm representing a real estate company in Tulsa. We're looking over farms in this neighborhood with a view to buying them. You want to buy this farm? Does it belong to you? Well, it belongs to my daughter, Mrs. Hadley. Sally Hadley? Yes. You know her? I've heard of her. Oh. Do you know where I can get in touch with her? I can speak for her. She was going to give me the place anyways, now. Mm -hmm. You want to buy it? Well, looks like the right place to me. But I'll have to have some of the men in my company look it over this afternoon, if it's all right with you. Oh, it's fine with me. You'll be here. Yeah, I'll be here. As long as I can count on seeing you later. Oh, don't worry. You can count on seeing me. Definitely. We momentarily close the Federal Bureau of Investigation file of the case of Shotgun Hadley. We will return to this case in just a moment. In pioneer days, Americans looked to their neighbors for security. When Mrs. Brown was sick abed, neighboring wives came over to help out. If her husband died, neighbors saw to it that she and her children had clothes, food, and shelter. But as the nation grew in population, as life became more complex... This neighborly security was no longer sufficient. To take its place, in the year 1859, a group of Americans founded the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. Today, it has grown into a strong mutual organization in which each member enjoys the advantages of association with 3,200,000 good neighbors who have pooled their dollars to protect each other. The equitable management then puts these dollars to work in ways that benefit the entire nation. Equitable funds encourage home ownership. They lend the farmer a helping hand. They finance great industries on which our prosperity depends. So is it not right and proper to speak of life insurance funds as one of democracy's greatest assets? By serving its members, the equitable serves America. And now, back to the file on Shotgun Hadley, Kidnapper. Small things, but enough for the FBI special agents to move swiftly on the trail of the kidnappers. The parents of Sally Hadley were arrested and jailed. Throughout the nation, the FBI sent a list of the serial numbers on the ransom money, sent a description of the kidnapper, sent the call, find Shotgun Hadley. To the FBI, Frank Hadley was another criminal who had to be caught. To the nation, he was public enemy number one. To his wife, with whom he shared a hotel suite in St. Louis, 
Shotgun Hadley was a frightened fool. We don't have to get out of here. Now sit down and cool off, darling. Sally, they've got the serial numbers of this dough. Shall I mix you another drink, too? They've picked up some of the bills already. Frank, will you sit down and relax? Sure. Sit down and wait for them to clap us in jail along with your mother and father. They're not going to put us in jail because they're not going to catch us. They will if we don't get on the move. We'll move. But there's something we've got to do first. What? Sit down. What for? Come on. That's it, darling. Now, you're going to write a letter. A letter? Mm-hmm. Here's a pen and paper. Just write what I tell you. Who's it to? Just write what I tell you. Dear Mr. Hoover. What? Are you... Go con- on. Dear Mr. Hoover, while you and your men are knocking yourselves out... Sally, no, change you? that to wearing yourselves out. I am living on the fat of the land. Go on, darling. Wait a minute. What's the rest of this going to say? Oh, it's going to say that he'll never catch you because you're too good for him. What? You did this alone, all by yourself, without anyone's help. And you did. What are you trying to do, tie a noose around my neck? Frank, this is a confession. he's got my poor mother and father in jail, and I've got to get them out. For having me confess? Look, he knows you did it anyway. This will just clear my folks and show him that you're not afraid of anything. It'll just put me in jail instead of them. Oh. You're really afraid of your own shadow, aren't you, darling? Sally, listen. You listen to me. Now, when I married you, I thought you were a man. I thought you were a man who could be the number one boy in this country. I thought you had guts. Sally, What I... are you afraid of? You are number one now. You've got to show them that. You've got to show them that they're the ones to be afraid. You've got to show them that you're too big to touch. Because you are, Frank. You are. Sally, look. If we mail the letter we're from here, we... We're not going to. I'm going to send it to a friend of mine in Chicago and have her mail it from there. When they get it, they'll see how big you are. They'll see you don't care. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And then tomorrow, we're going to buy another car, and before they even have a chance to look at the bills, we'll be on our way. Okay, okay, honey, okay. You just don't realize what a big man you've become. Now, what have you written? Dear Mr. Hoover, while you and your men are... Wait. Wait, I've got a wonderful idea. An idea that will top the whole thing off. What now? Hoover may think the letter is from some crime. But do you know what you're going to do? You're going to put your fingerprints on it, darling. What? You're going to prove this is straight from Shotgun Hadley. Chicago, from Dallas, from Denver, from cities all over the West come letters to the FBI. And as the letters turn up, money turns up too, ransom money. $20 bills reported by alert citizens to the FBI. $20 bills had put the FBI closer on the trail of Frank and Sally Hadley. But Sally Hadley has gotten impatient. Leaving her husband in a small house near Memphis, she buys a cheap gingham dress, a red wig, and a second-hand car. And with complete unconcern, drives right back to Oklahoma. On the way, she gives a lift to two hitchhikers. A man and his eight-year-old daughter. I guess your little girl is asleep, Mr. Butler. Yeah. She was awful tired. Of course she was. 
Well, we'll get her a good dinner as soon as we get to town. Why, you've been so nice. I couldn't let you do anything else for us, ma'am. Oh, don't be silly. I want to. Besides, she reminds me of my own little girl. Oh, do you have one? Yes. By my first husband. He died, poor man, and Frank, that's my second husband, he won't let my little baby live with him. Oh, that's terrible. Well, he isn't a very nice man. He... Mr. Butler. Yeah? Can I trust you? Of course. I... I'm in terrible trouble, and I've got to speak to somebody. i just got to get help from someone. Ma'am, if there's anything at all I can do... Well, maybe you won't say that when you know the truth. I'm Sally Hadley, and my husband is Shotgun Hadley. The kidnapper? Yes. Gee. I didn't know what kind of a man he was when I married him. I... Well, it's a little too late for that now, isn't it? But he's done terrible things to me, too. To my little girl, to my family. Oh. Because of him, my poor mother and father are in jail now. And... Mr. Butler, I just got to get them out. But the papers... I know, I know, but anything my father and mother did, he made them do at the point of that shotgun of his. Oh, Mr. Butler, will you do me a favor, please? Will you, will you just go to Oklahoma City and see my lawyer for me? Sure, You see, but... I can't go because the police are looking for me. But I want him to get a message to the FBI for me. I want him to tell them that if they will leave my mother and father, I'll tell them where my husband is. I'll be glad to take your message, Mrs. Hadley. Uh, only... Only what? Well, my little girl... Oh, don't worry about her. I'll keep her here with me. Why, she'll be as safe as my own little girl would be. Hello, Skylar speaking. Oh, yes. No, not just yet. I'm trying to reach the bureau in Washington. May I call you back in a few minutes? Fine. Goodbye. Mrs. Hadley's lawyer again. Pretty anxious for our answer, isn't he? Yes. Suppose he seriously thinks we're going to release the mother and father, Skyler. I don't know. Maybe he's as crazy as Sally Hadley. There's a sweet double-crosser for you. <laughs> Ready to sell out her own husband. Well, if he's half as tough as his reputation, I don't blame her. I wonder if she was crazy enough to come back here to Oklahoma. She might be. One sure thing, though. We know she hasn't been to a lawyer's office. I don't think we can stall him much longer. We don't have to. He's covered by now, and as soon as we find Sally Hadley's intermediary, we'll find her. And her sharpshooting husband. Right. Will you get Mrs. Hadley's lawyer for me, please? Sally Hadley, waiting in an auto camp outside Oklahoma City for the message from a lawyer, gets frightened. And so Sally Hadley, with a little child as her protection, runs to her husband, who is now in Memphis. Meanwhile, special agents of the FBI located a man in Oklahoma City. The man who was Sally Hadley's intermediary. The man whose eight-year-old child is on her way to a gangster's hideout. Well, now we've got a little eight-year-old girl to worry about, Skyler. Yes. I just hope that Hadley woman is there. Hello. Skyler. You did? Or see when? Hmm. Okay, we'll see what you can pick up. Well, that's that. What? The Hadley woman cleared out of the auto camp. Where's she going? I don't know. Well, we'd better send out a call for a woman driving with an eight-year-old girl. A woman with a red wig. Right. 
She's probably going back to her husband. That's my guess, too. And they'll probably try to move with the little girl. And... Scholar speaking. Yes. Let's go on. Got it. Right. Right. That was Memphis. Oh. Two days ago, a second-hand car dealer down there brought in a flock of those $20 bills. And a man who sells wigs brought in another. I see. And at 4 o'clock this afternoon, a liquor dealer brought in another. Well, I guess I'd better phone my wife and tell her I won't be home for dinner again. Yes, I think we'll be having dinner in Memphis. At a quarter to four, one September morning, a little girl sat on the Memphis Railroad Station. A frightened little girl clutching a ticket that would take her back to her father. But a little girl who remembered that she had had supper in a frame house near the edge of the city. And that she had seen a shotgun in that house. At 5.35 that same morning, agents of the FBI and local officers surrounded the frame house. They were armed with guns. With guns to battle against the murderous reputation of a man called Shotgun Hadley. It was just beginning to get light when two of them quietly entered the house. They stood for a moment in a dark room. To the left were two doors. Two closed doors leading to two bedrooms. Leading to Shotgun Hadley. They opened the first. Keep quiet. Who are you? Federal Bureau of Investigation. Federal Bureau? Oh, thank God. Listen, he's in there. Get him. He ruined my life. That was Sally Hadley, the woman who had planned the kidnapping. The woman who later tried unsuccessfully to convince a jury that she was innocent. The woman who cared no more for her husband than she did for his gun. But she had built up a tremendous reputation for him. And now, as the FBI agents moved to the door of his bedroom, they checked their guns. They tried to anticipate the blast of that shotgun. And then, in a quick movement, they rushed the door to Frank Hadley. There was no battle, no fight, no shooting. Frank Hadley, kidnapper. Frank Shotgun Hadley, public enemy number one. Stood against the wall, his hands raised high, his knees shaking. Don't shoot, Jimin. Don't shoot. That was the beginning of the popular use of the phrase G-men. G-men meaning government men, meaning FBI agents. And that was the first and last time Frank or Sally Hadley tried a kidnapping. No kidnapper in this country has ever tried twice once the FBI has caught them. Because the FBI is the largest protective force in the world. You see, it doesn't consist only of a director and a Washington headquarters of field officers and special agents. It also consists of you and all those like you. In every case, it's the cooperation of the people which enables the FBI to find the criminal. And that is the way it should be. Because the FBI, like our government, is created by the people, for the people. It is the people. Have you ever said to yourself, no, I can't possibly buy an extra war bond. And then you find yourself thinking of someone you know in the Army or Navy, your son, your brother, your neighbor. 
And you think, what are your sacrifices compared to his? And so somehow or other you find the money for that extra war bond. Remember the extra satisfaction you felt? Well, that's how members of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States feel about the special campaign their society is conducting this month. All premium dollars received from new equitable policies written in April will be matched with an equal number of dollars by the equitable, and the combined total will be used to purchase extra war bonds during the seventh war loan drive in May. Remember, these war bonds will be over and above the equitable's other purchases, which amounted to the largest single subscription in both the fifth and sixth war loan drives. In wartime, equitable dollars are fighting dollars. And at all times, they are security dollars for you, your home, your country. The incidents used in tonight's broadcast are taken from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious... And any similarity thereof to the names of persons living or dead is accidental. In tonight's cast, Sally was played by Leslie Woods and Hadley by Mandel Kramer. The music was under the direction of Van Cleave. The author was Lawrence MacArthur and your narrator was Frank Lovejoy. This is your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. This is Carl Frank speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States... And inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time, for this is your FBI. Stay tuned for The Life of Riley. Time now for William Bendix to show up as Chester A. Riley a wing riveter in an aircraft factory back during the Second World War. The Life of Riley, with William Bendix as Riley. Last week, Chester Riley's son, Junior, came home with some wonderful news. During the night, there'd been a small fire in his school, and now it's to be closed for one week for repairs. So Junior and his pal Egbert Gillis decided to take advantage of the holiday by going to a Boy Scout camp near Lake Arrowhead. News of this decision soon reached the ears of their doting fathers, and Riley Sr. said, I absolutely forbid it. Now, I don't want no arguments, Junior. It's time you learned that there's somebody at the head of this house, and you've got to do what the head of the house says. And the head of this house says you can't go. And I agree with your mother. <laughs> the house next door, Egbert Gillis's father said, Egbert, I absolutely forbid it. Now, it's no use pestering me. Yesterday I forbode it, today I forbid it, and if you ask me tomorrow, I'll forboot it again. <laughs> but teenage boys are persistent. And then Riley said, Please don't go, Junior. I'll miss you. I see so little of you. I thought this week we could pal around together. So don't go. I'll double your allowance. I'll triple it. Just think, Junior, 60 cents a week. <laughs> and next door, Gillis said, Eggbait, Eggbait, sweetheart, you don't want to leave your papa. If you stay, I'll buy you a nice present, huh? What do you say? Don't go, and I'll get you a brand new lawnmower. <laughs> but the boys were stubborn. 
So finally, each father had to put his foot down. I don't care what your mother says. You can't go, Egbert. Nothing will make me change my mind. It's no use begging, Junior. I said you can't go, and that's final. I have made up my head. <laughs> Bye, Junior. Goodbye, Egbert. Goodbye. 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 Let it go, Gillis. Yeah. They couldn't wait for the bus to pull out. Fine kids we got. They get a week's vacation, and instead of staying home where they can spend a little time with their fathers for a change, they rush off. Yeah. And where do they go? To some wild wilderness where there's nothing to look at but weasels, coyotes, and skunks. Instead of, <laughs> instead of staying home and looking at us. <laughs> I'm telling you, Riley, this here younger generation, they're ungrates. Pure, adulterated ungrates. Yeah, you'd think they'd have a little affection for us after all we'd done for them. Yeah. Remember when the cop come after them for stealing a donut from Dingle's Bakery? Yeah. Who swore they was innocent? I did. And who ate up all the evidence? I did. <laughs> but you think they remember that? Yeah. But when we was kids, we loved our father. You bet we did. I always thought of my father as an idol. Mine never waked neither, but I loved him just the same. <laughs> My father went. I wanted to go. Yeah, me too. He used to take me to all the ball games. Every game we were there together. He'd sell the hot dogs and I'd smear on the mustard. <laughs> Believe me, Riley, being a father is only grief. You raise a son, you feed him, you dress him, you educate him. And in the end, what do you got? An empty room. <laughs> That's until he gets married. Then the room gets crowded. <laughs> Give us our kids have got to be taught a lesson. They got to learn that you don't get something for nothing. If you want love, you got to give love. You're right. Love breeds love. We'll show those kids. They want to go, let them. We'll show them it don't bother us none. That's the idea. We'll show them we don't care. We won't even write to them. You bet. Besides, with them going, who we get to write for us? <laughs> yes, sir, Gillis, we'll show them. Yeah, it's easy to say, but I know you, Riley. You'll get soft. You'll crack. Oh, no, no, not me. Not this time. If anybody cracks, it'll be you. When it comes to Egbert, you always were a softie. Who, me? Yeah, you. Just yesterday, you took a filet mignon that was for your dinner, a dollar fifty a pound, and you put it on Egbert's black eye. Well, it was only fair. After all, I gave him the black eye. <laughs> he walked into a door I was opening. But don't you worry about me. Well, okay. From now on, no sentiment. We're making a pact. It's a pact. But the next week, them boys don't exist. We're cutting them down from our family tree. Right. And when they've learned their lesson, we hang them up again. Oh, Riley, is that all you're going to eat? I ain't hungry, Dumplin'. What's the matter with you, anyway? You've been mooning around all day. You won't eat, you won't talk. Why are you in such an ugly mood? I ain't in an ugly mood. Don't judge by my face. <laughs> Inside, I feel swell. Oh, you don't fool me. I know what's bothering you. You miss Junior. I do not. Why should I miss him? The minute he left, I put him out of my mind just like that. I never gave him another thought. Two days, 12 hours, and eight minutes since he left, and he hasn't written yet. <laughs> so you do miss him. Uh, what's wrong with that? After all, he's been with us 13 years now. Ever since he was born. <laughs> Why, I grew up with him. 
And he's a fine boy. Uh, the least he can do is drop a line to show that he remembers he's got a father. Oh, Riley, be sensible. After all, he's my boy, too. I love him and I miss him, but I don't get all upset just because he's away for a few days. Oh, yeah, you can talk like that. You've never been his father. <laughs> you didn't go through what I went through when he was born. I thought I heard everything. He just don't care about me. After all, how long does it take to write a six-page letter? Never mind a letter, a card. One word, regards. He don't even have to sign it. I'd know it was from him. Riley, I know you're very fond of Junior, but don't forget you've got another child. Who? Why, Riley! Oh, yeah, 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 Babs, yeah. Well, yeah, Babs, he's a sweet girl. You know... You, you've always been closer to Junior than you've been to Babs. Well, now's your chance to get to know her better. Well, gee, I love Babs, but... Well, well she's not like Junior. When we play catch, she throws the ball like a girl. <laughs> and if we went fishing, would she bite a worm in half with her teeth like Junior does? <laughs> Riley. Of course she throws a ball like a girl. That's because she is a girl. Yeah, that must be the reason. <laughs> Girls need a father's companionship as much as boys. You ought to show some interest in the things that interest Babs. Go on, talk to her. It'll cheer you up. Yeah. Yeah, why not? What if Junior is gone? I can get along without him. I've got my little Babs. Oh, Babs! Babsy! In here, Daddy. Ah, oh, hello, Yeah, Mind if I sit down? Of course not, Daddy. Oh, wait, I'll move these magazines. Oh, yeah. Well... I, uh, I just thought I'd drop in and have a friendly little talk. <laughs> All right, Daddy. Let's talk. Yeah. Well, uh, um... Uh, excuse me. Peg, Peg. What is it? What'll I talk about? Oh, for heaven's sake, talk about anything. Talk about school. Yeah, school. That's it, yeah. Well, uh, tell me, Babs, how's school? Fine. <laughs> well, that one's shot. Anything special on your mind, Daddy? Huh? Oh, no, no, nothing at all. My mind's a perfect blank. <laughs> I just wanted to talk. Uh, uh, what's that you're reading there, honey? Oh, just a magazine. You wouldn't be interested in it. Well, who wouldn't? I'm very interested in magazines. I read Esquire every week. Daddy, Esquire only comes out once a month Yeah, I know I, I read it four times <laughs> Well, this is a fashion magazine Oh, fashion magazine Well, let me see Oh, yeah, yeah I've seen that around Hopper's Buzzer <laughs> Bizarre, Daddy Well, you mind if I look at it with you? Oh, Daddy It's mostly about women's clothes You wouldn't care about that No, no, I do I'm interested in everything That interests you You tell me all about it right? Well, they've got two of the most gorgeous dresses you've ever seen there, Devon. Well, tell me more. I'm all ears. <laughs> well, I can't make up my mind which I like best. Now, this one here is a taffeta with a sweetheart neck and a dirndl skirt. Huh? But this one's a file dress with a bustle back, leg of mutton sleeve, and a cowl neck. Which one do you like? <laughs> well, uh, well, you look beautiful with mutton legs and a cow's neck. <laughs> I can see you in, in this one here. I, I oh, think that's you a, would? Oh, yeah. Daddy, you're an angel. It's only thirty dollars, but now, I never dreamed you'd buy it. Wait a minute, Dad. I didn't mean that you. Oh, now, just a minute, Beth. Oh, you're an angel, Daddy. I got up on the way and tell you you're gonna buy it. Now wait, Beth. I. 
Oh, well, so I'll wear this suit another four years. <laughs> well, dear, did you have a nice talk with Bab? Uh, some conversation. Three minutes, and it cost me 30 bucks. <laughs> I could have phoned long distance for that dog. Only I don't know anybody who lives further than Glendale. <laughs> hey, wait, I do know someone. Junior. I could have phoned Junior. I still can. Oh, if I could just hear his voice. Well, go ahead. It only costs a dollar. Yeah, I, I could... No, 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 I, I can't. Gillis might find out. Well, what's Gillis got to do with it? Well, we sort of agreed that we'd teach those boys a lesson and show them that we don't miss them. Oh, that's ridiculous. Never mind, Gillis. Go on and phone. But we made a pact. We shook hands on it. There's only one way out. I'll be a diplomat. I'll break the pact. <laughs> but we've got to keep this from Gillis. Stop worrying about Gillis. Go on and phone. Okay. Well, dial the operator. Shh. First, I want to make sure that Gillis ain't listening in on the party line. Ever since we both got the same party line, he's always listening. Yeah, okay, the coast is clear. Long distance? I, I, I want to put in a person-to-person call to Junior Riley at Camp High Point in Lake Arrowhead. I am sorry. There is some trouble with the lines in Lake Arrowhead. There will be a two-hour delay. A two-hour... Uh, oh, that's... Uh, Six o'clock, yeah. Well, okay, call me back when you get him. Gladstone 9989J. Poor Gillis. <laughs> he must be suffering, but it's his own fault. He just ain't smart enough to think of a double cross like this. <laughs> That's no use. Ever since my egg boot's gone, I can't stand it no more. Living in an empty house with nobody but my wife. <laughs> I don't care what I promised Riley. Oh, I, I want to talk person to person to Egg Boy Gillis and Percy. Camp High Point, Lake Arrowhead. Sorry, sir. There will be a two-hour delay. Yeah, okay, I'll be here. This is Party Line Gladstone 9989K. I feel better already. <laughs> Poor Riley. <laughs> well, what he don't know won't hurt me. You uh, you out here, Gillis? Oh, hello, Riley. Yeah, just taking a nose full of fresh uh, fresh air. Uh, it's, 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 it's a nice night, huh, Gillis. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gillis, well, why don't you go for a nice long walk? Get get away from the house? No, I I think I'll hang around the house here. Uh, uh, why why don't you go for a long walk? Oh no no I I, I think I'll hang around too. Well, uh, Riley, how goes it? You uh, missing Junior? Who? Junior? Oh, my wife's son. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you, you miss an Egbert? No. Why should I miss it? We agreed to put him out of our minds, didn't we? Yeah, it's the smartest thing we ever did. It just goes to show you what willpower can do. Well, sure. <laughs> what time is it, Riley? Uh, three minutes and ten seconds to six. Uh, well, well, what time have you got, Gillis? Three minutes, nine seconds to six. I'm a little fast. What time is it now, Gillis? Two minutes to six. What time you got? A minute and fifty-nine seconds to six. <laughs> What's the matter, Gillis? Your ears are quivering. Nothing, nothing. So, hey, excuse, excuse me, me, I, I just remember. I, I gotta go, go to bed. bed. I'll see, see you later. Oh, it was my phone. Thank heaven. Hello? On your call to Lake Arrowhead, I am trying to locate your party. Hold on, please. Yeah, okay, I'll hold on. Hello? Hello? Hello, is that you, pal? Yeah, yeah, this is me. Is that you, pal? Yeah, gee, your voice sounds so different. It sounds hoarse. <laughs> You're different, too. I can hardly recognize you. 
I I think we got a bad connection. Do you miss me, pal? I'll say I do. Do you miss me? Every minute. I'm so lonesome. Can you love me? Love you. Here's a kiss. And here's one for you. Uh Are you having fun? Well, what did you do today? Nothing much. I've been hanging around with that big Jake Riley. Well, I've been... (laughs) Gillis, it's you. Riley, it's you. You double-crosser. You put in a call for your junior. Oh, yeah? Well, you're a double-crosser, too. You put in a call for your Egbert. Yes, but you're the worst, Mr. Riley. You placed your call first. The next time I use the telephone, I'm going to write instead. Before Prowl brings you the second act of The Life of Riley, I'd like to say thanks to all of you folks who have written to tell us how much you've enjoyed the new Life of Riley motion picture starring William Bendix with James Gleason and Rosemary DeCamp and John Brown as Digger O'Dell. We agree it's a very funny movie. And if you haven't seen it yet, don't miss The Life of Riley when it plays in your city. And now back to The Life of Riley. So all right, Riley, let's face it. So we both made a mistake. We broke under the strain and cracked the pack. Well, wait, Gillis, we, we didn't really crack the pack because we didn't actually talk to the boys. Yeah, that's right. The pack ain't cracked. It's still intact. <laughs> but from now on, we got to be stronger than ever. And there's one way to make sure we don't give in. What do you mean? Well, we're both members in good standing of the BPLA. Yeah, but what's this got to do with the Brooklyn Patriots of Los Angeles? (laughs) We're taking the supreme oath of everlasting brotherly trust. No, not that. Not the supreme oath. The Constitution says you're only supposed to take that in times of catastrophes, like earthquakes, floods, epidemics, and eviction. Yeah, when a boy don't love his father, that's an emergency. Uh, Come on, the oath. Shake. Shake. Fingers to fingers. Toes to toes. If I break this pact, break my nose. Riley, we're home. I guess Daddy's out. Oh, that's funny. He said he's staying in tonight. Oh, just listen to that, Mother. I wish the landlord would install a new hot water boiler. That's not the boiler. It's your father snoring. He must be in the living room. Oh, yes, there he is on the couch. (laughs) Just listen to him, Mother. Now I know what to get you for your birthday. Earplugs. (laughs) He's talking in his sleep. What's he saying? Well, I, I... Can't quite make it out. Darling, I love you. He's dreaming about you, Mother. He better be. (laughs) When I come home from work, my first thought is of you. He does mean you, Mother. Oh, the sweet thing. Don't ever leave me. I can't live without you. Ah, but darling, I'll wake him up with a kiss. Oh, thank you, Junior. (laughs) Junior? I give up. Oh, oh, it's you. Where's Junior? I... Oh, it's only a dream. I forgot. He's gone. Oh, now listen, Riley. It's all right to love your son, but you're overdoing it. Junior goes away for a few days and you act like the world's ended. You mope around the house, you talk in your sleep. 
You better snap out of it. Yeah, but he didn't even write. Not even a card. Kids Junior's age never write. You know that, Daddy. Now, there's nothing to worry about. The scoutmaster at the camp takes good care of the boys. Besides, if anything went wrong, they'd let us know. I know all that. Well, then what are you so gloomy about? I miss him. <laughs> My own son ignores me. I was always so good to him. I treated him like he was my own son. Some son. He don't write. He don't phone. As far as he's concerned, I ain't even alive. According to my records, he's wrong. <laughs> Who's that? It is I, Digby O'Dell, the friendly undertaker. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't see you, Digger. Greetings, Riley. Going my way? Uh, no, I'm just strolling around a while while I walk. You know, Digger, life is full of disappointments A man tries to be a nice guy, be a friend and a pal And then in the end, someone lets him down Please, let's not talk shop (laughs) I feel terrible, Digger, it's my boy, Junior He went camping three days ago and, gee, I miss him Would you believe it? I saw him off at the station last Thursday And since then, I ain't even heard from him Oh, don't let that worry you, Riley I've seen lots of people off and I never heard from them But I don't mind. As long as I know where they are, I'm satisfied. Oh, but I miss him so much. Being a father is nothing but trouble. Ah, fatherhood. Frantically summoning a taxi when the little woman tells you the moment has arrived. Desperately speeding to the hospital at 60 miles per hour. Impatiently pacing the hospital corridor until the stalk arrives. And then rushing back to the pinochle game. <laughs> I adore pinochle. It's... It's okay. <laughs> My wife says I should go up to camp and see Junior. An excellent suggestion. Yeah, but I can't. Gillis and me made a solemn promise to ignore our boys, to teach them a lesson for desertness, and I gotta keep my word. Besides, Gillis is watching me like a hawk. I see. Uh, but suppose Babs wanted to see her little brother. Naturally, you'd have to chaperone her on the trip. Yeah. Yeah, and then if Gillis found out, why... Hey, that's a great idea. We'll leave first thing in the morning. Digger, you're a real pal. Someday I'll do something for you. I'm sure you will. <laughs> well, cheerio. I'd better be shoveling off. Hurry up, Babs. I want to reach the camp before it gets dark. Oh, I'm exhausted. I still don't see why he had to take me along. I keep telling you, Babs, if Gillis finds out, you're my alibi. Well, let's go on. Yeah, now remember, keep close to me. There's wild animals around here. Wild animals? Sure, wolves and bears and coyotes. Bears? Now, don't be afraid. If a bear should jump out at you from the bush, start running. And don't worry, I'll be right in front of you. Now, come on. (laughs) Let's go. Oh, gee, I can hardly wait to see Junior. Oh, I think I see the camp, Daddy. Where, where, where? There, you can see it through the trees. Yeah, that's it. Hurry up. Come on. Wait, Daddy. What's wrong? Listen, there's something in those bushes. There, 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 there is? Oh, it's some kind of an animal. Maybe it's a bear. A bear? No, 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 no. Don't be afraid. You stay here. I'll run and get help. It's coming toward us. It's looking at us. I see its hairy face. It's got long fangs and beady red eyes. Why, Mr. Gillis? 
Riley! <laughs> bear! Shillings! I thought you was a bear. I'll never trust you again. The minute I turn my back, you follow me. Oh, Riley, what's the use? Let's admit we're licked. I, 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 I can't stand it. After all, Egbert's my own fleshy blood. My only male son. Yeah, you're right, Gillis. Why fight nature? This has been the lonesomest week of my life. Look, there's the scoutmaster over there. Let's go ask him to get the boy. No, no, wait a minute, Gillis. Babs, you go get him and walk past this tree, and then we'll jump out and surprise him. Huh? Oh, all right, but you stay right there. Yeah. Oh, gee, Gillis, I hope we did the right thing in coming here. I hope so, too. Egbert and Junior might not like it. Yeah, they might resent us, making sissies out of them. Maybe we better go home. No, no, no. We come this far. Let's stick it out. Yeah. Daddy. Hey, here comes Babs. Oh, Daddy. Where's Junior? Where's Egbert? They're gone. Gone? What do you mean? Where'd they go? They ran away this morning. They went home. Home? They ran away home? Home? But this I came through ten miles of poison ivy? <laughs> well, don't you see, Gillis? They went home because they couldn't stand being away from their fathers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they missed us. They love us. Yeah, and we were worried. Oh, this is the biggest thrill of my life. Here's the note they left. Yeah, let, let's see. Let's see what the little darlings say. We're going home. We can't stand it any longer. We miss our mothers. <laughs> their mothers? They love their mothers? What a revolting development this is. <laughs> We'll return in just a moment. There's a glamorous air about Prell washed hair. Yes, that's what you'll discover when you use Prell, Procter & Gamble's radiant cream shampoo. Because Prell helps hair to more glamour two ways. First, even in hardest water, Prell leaves hair more radiant than any leading cream shampoo. Yes, with Prell, your hair is radiantly soft, radiantly smooth, so easy to comb and manage. And second, Prell removes unsightly dandruff in as little as three minutes. Doctor's examinations proved it. Try Prell yourself. As Tallulah says... I'm Tallulah the tube of Prell And I'll make your hair look swell It'll shine and glow so dandruff-free For radiant hair, get a hold of me Tallulah the tube of Prell Shampoo I'm home. Is Junior here yet? Yes, he's sound asleep. Did he tell you why he left camp? Well, yes, he did. I guess he loves you more than he loves me. Oh, no, Riley, don't be silly. Oh, I don't mind. That's life. You find it in every family. Anyway, it works out even in the end. The boy loves the mother the most, and the girl loves the father the least. (laughs) Folks... Folks, this is Riley, alias William Bendix, saying goodbye for a while and hoping you will be with us again when we return to the air Friday night, October 7th, over your NBC station. Tonight marks the close of four happy years of broadcasting the life of Riley for Procter & Gamble, makers of our favorite shampoo, Prell. And we wish our sponsor and you folks who have allowed us to visit you every week a wonderful summer and good luck to you all. See you in October. Shampoo has presented The Life of Riley with William Bendix as Riley and wishes them the best of everything when they return to the air next fall. And don't miss the hilarious new motion picture comedy, The Life of Riley, now playing in most cities throughout the country. 
Tonight's script is by Alan Lipscott and Reuben Schiff. Mrs. Riley is Paula Winslow. Digger Odell is John Brown. Babs is Barbara Eiler. Junior is Tommy Cook. Mitchell Lindemann directs with music by Lou Coslow. And thanks to John Morris, Floyd Caton, and Ralph Reed of NBC. The Life of Riley is produced by Irving Brecker. And remember, for more radiant hair free of unsightly dandruff, get the shampoo in the tube. P-R-E-L-L, Prell Shampoo. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's the Screen Guild Theater's rendition of The Devil and Miss Jones, followed by The Red Skelton Show. Thanks to Joel Shonwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.